What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbiyi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Endometriosis is a debilitating condition where tissue from the uterus grows where it shouldn't. It's as common as diabetes, but research on its treatment is comparatively much further behind. But a new study could be about to change that. And it's been 20 years since the coining of the word podcast. We explore two decades of a famously intimate medium and revisit its breakout hit. And then, more recently, we hear the industry story took a dark turn. First up, though. America's presidential primary season has, in past election cycles, had some real excitement to it, a winnowing of worthy candidates to the two who will face off in November. This one, by now, meh, not so much. In the state of Michigan yesterday, Donald Trump and President Joe Biden easily won their respective parties' nominations, though Mr. Biden's margin was reduced by tens of thousands of people who voted as uncommitted, a protest vote against his handling of the war in Gaza. As zipped up as the election head-to-head seems to be, though, there are still plenty of people who tune in each day of this long election season, not least in China. Donald Trump. What you can hear there is a, a repetition of the word dong, 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 dong. There's billions and billions of dong. Which means understand in Chinese. And it's a reference to the name for Donald Trump that's often used online, King Know-It-All, because Donald Trump often says uh, that he knows more than anyone else uh, uh, about uh, almost everything. Nobody knows China better than me. James Miles is The Economist's China writer at large. He's been finding the bigger picture that's evident from the internet videos that are wildly popular in China. Joe Biden is known as Shui Wang, which means Sleepy King. That's a reference to his old age and, of course, to Donald Trump's frequent uh, description of Mr. Biden as Sleepy Joe. Chinese are very interested in the election proceedings in America. There's enormous discussion of this online and widely varying views of the two men. Well, let's take each of them in turn, then. What do the Chinese people in general think about Mr. Trump? Well, I think ordinary Chinese, uh, many of them, are actually quite supportive of Donald Trump. And that's reflected in another popular term that's used online in China, which is 
川建国同志 ，Comrade Chuan Jianguo. Chuan being Mr. Trump's surname in Chinese, and Jianguo, which means building the country. Donald Trump is actually seen as somebody who is good. At building China, and the reason for that、uh, is that his antics are seen as undermining the image of democracy. Donald Trump's disdain for allies, dismissiveness of NATO, his、uh, threats to pull out troops from Japan, South Korea—all of these things are to the good of China. But Mr. Trump's term was characterized by、uh, by effectively a trade war between America and China. Is that not what's in people's minds now? I think for ordinary Chinese, many ordinary Chinese, that's not a huge issue. Of course, businesses exporting to America were hard hit by those tariffs. They rose from about three percent in 2018 to more than 20 percent by the end of 2019, when the two countries were able to reach a deal. But the views of ordinary Chinese、uh, are not necessarily the same as those of the Chinese government. So you say that ordinary Chinese people might not be too worried about the risk of another trade war. But what about the Chinese government? Surely that that's a, a real concern. Well, the Chinese government may view this rather differently. These are harder times for the. Chinese economy. It has faltered since the end of Xi Jinping's zero COVID campaign, which lasted for the better part of three years. The past year since then has been very bumpy for the Chinese economy. A trade war or an escalation of the trade war would add to China's difficulties. Now, what Mr. Trump himself is talking about is. Potentially increasing tariffs on Chinese goods coming into America to sixty percent or more—that would take us into a much, much bigger trade war between the two sides. Assuming China responds as it did before, so I think the Chinese government may well have serious concerns. And so, by contrast, how do you think the Chinese leadership has viewed Mr. Biden's term and, and the prospects for a second one? Well, the view of Mr. Biden is that, in spite of expectations at the beginning of his presidency, he has turned out, in many ways, to actually be tougher on China than、uh, Donald Trump was. Yes, he hasn't escalated the trade war, but he has maintained the Trump-era tariffs that were imposed on Chinese goods, and he has. Extended competition with China in many other domains, in the security domain by building up alliances, a new one in Asia involving Australia and Britain, aimed at building up capacity there to、uh, to push back against China's military rise. Friendships with Japan, with India, similarly focused. And crucially, also, Mr. Biden has made it much more difficult for China to access cutting-edge technology. Mr. Biden has stepped up controls on the export of such tech to China, with the aim of preventing it from acquiring state-of-the-art. Materials that could advance its military ambitions, and all of this, China finds worrying. It sees itself as being surrounded, if you like, by American power and by an America in conjunction with its allies that now sees China even more clearly as a potential threat. At the mention of Mr. Biden and his making alliances, it, it seems very clear that Mr. Trump doesn't put a lot of stock in such alliances. 
Well, Mr. Trump is very different and a more isolationist president. That's exactly what China would like America to be. It wants American power to retreat. It wants to create what it calls a a multipolar world order. And that means having another great power, i.e. China, be another pillar um, of the global order around which developing countries, other like-minded countries would revolve and China would use its economic clout to keep these other countries close to it. So from that perspective, they see Mr. Trump as something for the good. But on the other hand, of course, China also benefits from a global order that is stable. And if Mr. Trump is giving opportunities for Russia to be more aggressive in Europe, if it is undermining stability in Northeast Asia, in other words, giving encouragement to North Korea, perhaps, to be more assertive, even aggressive in the region, that could be destabilizing for China. So taking all of this into account, then, who do you believe the Chinese leadership, who do you believe Xi Jinping hopes will win the American election? Well, I think China looks at both men and is well aware that there will be potential benefits from either man becoming the next president, but also uh, considerable potential costs for China. I think it looks at the American election and thinks to itself, oh my God, whatever happens in November, China is not going to be a winner. People from China, they love me. Why? Because and I'm about to. Thanks very much for joining us, James. Thank you very much, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people. I'm Jodie Stewart. I'm 46 years old. I'm a lawyer and I live in Lincolnshire in the UK. As a teenager, I had extremely painful periods. I, at times, couldn't walk. The pain was so bad that I would vomit. I'd be laid on the floor, unable to do anything. Back then, I thought it was what every woman and girl experienced every month when they had their period. It was only after 12 or 14 years of experiencing quite debilitating pain at times that I went to see a doctor for help. When I got my endometriosis diagnosis, I was so relieved. 
I thought that there must be a treatment plan and I thought that there probably would be a cure. But there is no cure to endometriosis. It is a lifelong chronic condition that can be managed for the symptoms, but there is no cure to it. I was given hormonal treatment, which had some very severe side effects. I was 34 at that point. The first time I met another person with endometriosis was amazing. The moment somebody spoke about the fact that they were suffering with the same symptoms, they had the same condition, I instantly felt, this is not just me. And then from there, you realise, this is really common. More and more people are saying, it's me too. About one in ten women will experience the painful gynaecological condition, endometriosis, in their lifetime. That's a similar share to the proportion of the population with diabetes. But while doctors understand why diabetes occurs and how to treat it, as is so often the case with illnesses that only affect women, they know far less about endometriosis. Doctors put the knowledge gap down to funding and a lack of awareness. But that could finally be changing. Progress is finally being made on endometriosis. Rachel Dobbs is a news editor at The Economist. Most notably, there is a clinical trial currently going on at the University of Edinburgh, which has just this year started showing really promising results in a new possible drug. So for those who don't know, what exactly is endometriosis? The lining of the uterus is a layer of tissue called the endometrium, which thickens throughout a woman's menstrual cycle. If a fertilised egg does not get implanted into it that month, it gets shed And that is what we see as blood during a period. But that tissue can actually grow unusually outside of the uterus. And when that happens, that's what we call endometriosis. And it can be incredibly debilitating and incredibly severe. In the worst cases, it actually can bind a woman's organs together. And even in less severe cases, it is often very, very painful. And the symptoms are extreme pain, often fatigue. And also there are infertility problems that can come from it. It is very tricky to diagnose. It takes, on average, about 10 years. And that is in part because currently diagnosis almost always requires surgery. They have to go in with a camera to find evidence of the endometrial lesions in somewhere outside of the uterus. Another big problem is that women will be going to the doctor and saying, you know, I have excruciating pain during my periods. And for a long time, and this is improving, but it still is the case that a lot of people will just be told that's just normal. Some amount of pain in your menstrual cycle is normal. And often women who do end up getting diagnosed report having to fight really, really incredibly hard to get that diagnosis and to get someone to take what's going on seriously. And how do we currently treat it? There is no known cure. So treatments are typically focusing on reducing the symptoms and reducing the effect on a woman's life. And so normally that is done either through hormonal treatments, so typically birth control, which can minimise the amount of tissue that grows during a menstrual cycle, surgery to remove lesions if they are very painful, to remove scar tissue if that has built up, and then also just pain management. None of those methods have advanced very much in the last four decades. And the amount that we know about endometriosis is still very, very low. Not because it's impossible to understand, it's just because the research and the funding has not been there. And now a bit more research is really paying big dividends, and that is what we are seeing at the University of Edinburgh. 
Aha. Tell me a bit more about this breakthrough at the University of Edinburgh. So researchers there, led by Dr. Andrew Horn, when patients were coming in for diagnostic surgeries, they asked if they could also take a sample of the tissue from their pelvis. They were looking specifically at something called peritoneal endometriosis, which is when you have lesions on the lining of the pelvic wall, which is one of the most common types. By taking that tissue and looking at it, they found that in a very large proportion of cases, the women who had endometriosis had a much higher level of lactate in their pelvis, which is a byproduct of various cell functions. Why do these women with endometriosis have higher levels of lactate? The reason why is not 100% known, but it is theorised that it is something similar to the much higher levels of lactate that you see with cancer cells. Because cancer cells are growing and invading other cells, they seem to use the lactate in some form as a kind of fuel source. And so the theory is that it is helping the endometrial cells to do something similar in terms of of invading areas where they shouldn't be. So researchers were looking for a drug that has been used to try and tackle lactate in cancer, so that's been tested in cancer, and let's see what happens when that is applied to patients with endometriosis. Okay, so now tell me about this new treatment that we might finally have. So the drug that they were testing is dichloroacetate, which is also known as DCA, and it is used off-label with a lot of cancers, normally in conjunction with chemotherapy. It is also used in children who have disorders that involve them producing too much lactate or there being too much lactic acid in the blood. They then took a small group of patients and treated them with DCA and almost all of them reported reduced pain scores, higher quality of living, stuff like that. This didn't have a placebo arm and was quite a small group, so now they are moving it into a much bigger cohort of women. They're going to have a placebo arm, so some patients will be getting a drug that doesn't actually do anything, and then we'll retest the findings again. If all things go well, this could be approved as a drug in the use of endometriosis in about five to seven years. And if it is, it will be the first new non-hormonal, non-surgical treatment that has been discovered for endometriosis in a very, very long time. That sounds like a huge step forward. It really is. And there are other advancements going on in the field as well at the moment. I spoke earlier about how diagnosis is a very long and difficult process. And there are quite a few strides being made to try and speed that process up. Most of them focus on trying to use biomarkers, which are proteins or the signatures of a disease that will show up in something that is easily testable, like urine or saliva or blood. Probably the most advanced comes from a French firm called Zwig. It's called the Endotest and it uses saliva and they say they can bring a diagnosis down to 10 days. That is being piloted by the French healthcare authority. We do have to be a bit careful because the biomarker stuff isn't quite there yet. One of the things you have to be quite careful is to make sure that you have tested wide enough swathes of a population because different races or ethnicities exhibit biomarkers in different ways. But it is really, really exciting that, you know, movement is finally happening on this disease that has been known about for an incredibly long time, but kind of chronically underappreciated and underfunded. Well, I think it's about time. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I agree, Ori. Thank you for having me. In February 2004, the journalist Ben Hammersley noticed a new kind of digital media. Max Norman is a culture correspondent for The Economist who's been looking back at 20 years of a medium that's close to our hearts on the intelligence. He wrote a piece about it. His editor asked him to add an additional line. 
And so he improvised a few names. He proposed a couple, audio blogging and guerrilla media, that fortunately did not catch on, but a third did, podcasting, a portmanteau of iPod and broadcasting. A year later, Steve Jobs asked the audience at a tech conference if anyone had heard of podcasting, and a grand total of no one raised their hand. And what is podcasting? You know, it's been described a lot of different ways. Um, one way has been uh, TiVo for radio. You can download radio shows and listen to them on your computer or put them on your iPod anytime you want. So it's just like television programs on TiVo. And that's true. Another way it's been described is Wayne's World for radio. Um, which means that anyone... Oh, uh, boy, that dates us all, isn't it? But let's talk through some numbers. How, how mainstream? How big? So about a third of Americans and a quarter of Brits listen to at least one podcast a week. There are now some four million shows out there, probably more now, from ex-convicts to literal duchesses. Podcast has basically turned everyone with a microphone into a talking head who can talk straight into your ears. The boom was facilitated by the smartphone, especially iPhones, which came with a pre-installed podcast app starting in 2014, which was the same year as... Serial. This is a global tail link prepaid call from Adnan Sayed. An inmate at Serial was the big bang for podcasting. It was a binge worthy investigation into the botched murder trial of a young man in Maryland. It was the first show to really claim space in the mainstream of American culture. The first season has since been downloaded more than 300 million times. And in the five years after the show, the number of monthly podcast listeners in America doubled. The podcast critic Nicholas Qua told me that after Serial, podcasting entered a hypercharged, hypercapitalist, hyperspeculative period in which there was tons of money floating around. Suddenly, tech companies got involved. Since 2018, Spotify has invested more than a billion dollars in the medium. But last year, everything changed. Well, that sounds ominous. What changed last year? It depends a little bit on who you ask. In part, it was just a bad year for media in general. Economic headwinds affected everyone, and there was just less easy money sloshing around. But there was also a bit of a shift in the industry itself. Advertisers and investors realized that they actually didn't know very much about where their money was going. They didn't know how many people actually listened to podcasts, how long they listened, whether they listened to the ads, whether the ads were working. The metrics for podcasting are ridiculously bad. Some of the statistics about listenership come just from listener surveys, asking someone what they did rather than actually getting measurements. And above all, the downloads, which is the standard industry metric for engagement, don't necessarily mean listening. Listener, we don't know if you are there. So once the reckoning, the realization came that the metrics were crap, what happens then? There was a readjustment. Spotify alone eliminated some 200 podcasting jobs. NPR cut a sizable portion of their staff. Podcasting production companies across the industry were either reduced in size or in some cases went bankrupt altogether. And a number of really popular seminal shows were canceled. So this was, to your mind, one sort of bump in the road in the development of a new medium? Or is this going to be like a boom and bust cycle kind of medium forever, do you reckon? It depends on who you talk to. I think that this is a course correction and a maturation of the medium. 
I think it also resembles what happened with digital media more generally, say, a decade ago for journalism with the introduction of paywalls and other sorts of models to make digital journalism work. It's never been entirely clear what podcasting means exactly, what it's referring to. Audio only, if it's any audio that's on YouTube, can count as a podcast. And we might see a bit more segregation between long-form audio, intensely reported documentary series that some of us love. That will continue to exist, but perhaps more as long-form journalism does today. Whereas the kind of aggregate of the industry might look a lot more like social media in general, uh, with you know more emphasis on video, more emphasis on virality. But aside from the blockbusters like Serial, how do you think podcasting has uh, made its place in the media landscape? They've been the right medium for the broader kind of fragmentation of culture. I think it's also that we have an appetite for voice. We have an appetite for people. And rather than getting our news or our entertainment from a buttoned-up radio host or someone on TV, it's more fun to get it from a friend, which is what podcast hosts tend to feel like. The fact now that we all like the meta stuff, we all want to see the actor walk onto the set. We want to hear the mic check. We want to hear the reporter knock on the door. These are all things which we didn't really have a taste for necessarily before podcasting, but we've all become addicted to. You know, we want to hear the host ask dumb questions. We want to hear the fumbles. Stylistically, podcasting has brought all of that behind the scenes stuff to the fore. And I think that's something which has rippled beyond podcasting to media more generally. We all have this almost postmodern interest (laughs) in the construction of the media we're consuming. And, And I think that's in no small part thanks to podcasting. Yeah. um, And for the purposes of being like super meta, perhaps some of these asides um, and questions and uh, soul searching and fumbles and what have you will actually make the cut this time because that would be super (laughs) meta. Yeah. Um, And to that end, because it's all bloody relentless back in real life, um, I have to move on to the next one of these. Max, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, but breaking news from the marketing department. Our deal on annual subscriptions to Economist Podcasts Plus, you know, the deal that gets you access to our veritable firehose of mind-stretching audio for half price, it doesn't expire tomorrow. It's been extended till the middle of next month. I know, I know, I'm surprised too. Sign yourself up to listen to all our weekly analysis shows on topics from China to tech, the weekend intelligence, our award-winning limited-run series, and my word, who knows what else we'll come up with, all for a couple of bucks a month. Do it, and soon. You never know when these marketing types will change their minds. See you back here tomorrow. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.